Hello gentle listener and welcome to this festive episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. This episode is, as is usual around this time of year, more story than conversation about the history and folklore but I will share just a little before the story just in case you'd like to investigate further yourself. Our story is The Christmas Cookie. It's adapted from a literary fairy tale written by Frances Elizabeth Brown from a book called Granny's Wonderful Chair, first published in 1856. Frances was born in 1816 in Donegal, but moved first to Scotland and then to London. She originally wrote poetry, but also short stories. The whole collection is beautiful, and she created a gorgeous world, rich in imaginative detail, made even more incredible by the fact she lost her sight to eight months old. This is the first time I've retold a British literary fairy tale. They didn't really appear until the 19th century, much later than the European equivalent. This was mostly as a result of the Puritan movement in Britain that considered fairy tales to be damaging for children. And although folk tales continued in the oral tradition, new stories inspired by them did not appear. Lots of them, however, were written in the 19th century. They became popular with the model classes who wanted their children to have leisure reading that would prompt some creativity, which was often stripped from them in their strict educational establishment. There are lots of collections of these which you can find on any search engine. But please remember, when listening to my story, and also when reading theirs, that when these writers wrote, they were writing for two different audiences. One was obviously the children, and for them, the fairies and the tales were real. The second audience was the parents of those children, for whom the fairies and the tales were often allegories, gently reminding them that there were other things other than the pursuit of riches that should be valued. Many writers were concerned by social conditions in England, particularly during the later 19th century, and this was their way of trying to change minds. Just before we move to our festive story, I'd also like to share that barley bread has been cooked in Britain and Ireland since the Stone Age, with a flatbread style eventually giving way to a balm-leavened loaf. I also recently discovered it was recommended to bake it covered in a cabbage leaf to keep it moist as it took more cooking than wheat bread. So, as you will see, the brothers in our story had every ingredient for their festive supper. Leaven left over from their beer, barley meal from their field and a cabbage leaf to keep it moist. Now, I have, I hope, intrigued you and that you are listening comfortably. I bring you, without further ado, the Christmas cookie. Once upon a time, in a land... Well, maybe not so far from ours. There stood in the midst of a bleak moor in the north country a certain village. All its inhabitants were poor, for their fields were barren and they had little trade. But the poorest of all of them were two brothers, called Scrub and Spare, who followed the cobbler's craft and had, well, one stall between them. It was a hut built of clay and wattles. The door was low and always open, for there was no window. The roof did not entirely keep out the rain, and the only thing comfortable about it was a wide hearth, for which the brothers could never find wood enough to make a sufficient fire. There they worked in most brotherly friendship, although with little encouragement, because the people of that village were, as you can imagine, not extravagant in the way of shoes, and better cobblers than scrub and spare might be found. Spiteful people, they were said there were no shoes so bad they couldn't be made worse by their mending. Nevertheless, Scrub and Spare managed to live on in their own trade with their small barley field and a cottage garden until one unlucky day. When a new cobbler arrived in the village, he had lived in the capital city of the kingdom and, well, by his own account, cobbled for the queen and princesses. His awls were sharp, his lads were new, and he set up his stall in a neat cottage with two windows. 
The villagers soon found out one patch of his would wear, well, as long as two of the brothers. In short, all the mending left scrub and spare and went to the new cobbler. The season had been wet and cold and their barley didn't ripen well and their cabbages never, well, they never really came out of the soil. The brothers were poor that winter and when Christmas came, they had nothing to feast on but a barley loaf, a piece of rusty bacon and a, some beer of their own brewing. Worse than that, the snow was so very deep and they couldn't get any firewood. Their hut stood at the end of the village, beyond its spread the bleak moor now, all white and silent. But that moor had once been a forest. Great roots of old trees were still to be found in it, loosened from the soil and laid bare by wind and rain. One of these, a rough, gnarled log, lay hard by their door, and half it was above the snow. Spur said to his brother, Shall we sit here cold at Christmas, while that big great root's over there? Let's chop it up for firewood. The work will make us warm. No, said Scrub, it's not right to chop wood on Christmas. Besides, that root's too hard to be broken with any hatchet. Hard or not, we must have a fire, replied Spare. Come, brother, help me with it. Poor as we are, there's nobody in the village will have such a yule log as ours. Scrubbed and liked a little grandeur, and in hopes of having a fine yule log, both brothers strained and pulled and strained and pulled with all their might between pulling and pushing the old roots great safe on the hearth, and beginning to crackle and blaze with red embers. In high glee, the cobbler sat down to celebrate their Christmas with beer and bacon and the world's biggest yule log. The door was shut, for there was nothing but cold moonlight and snow outside, but the hut, strewn with fir boughs, ornamented with holly, looked cheerful as the ruddy blaze flared up and it rejoiced their hearts. Long life and good fortune to ourselves, brother. I hope you'll drink that toast and may we never have a worse fire at Christmas. But what's that? Spare set down the drinking cup and the brothers listened astonished, for out of the blazing root they heard cuckoo, cuckoo. As plain as ever the Springfirds' voice came over the moor on a May morning. This is something bad, said Scrub, terribly frightened. Not be, said Spur, and out of the deep hole of the side of which the fire had not reached, flew a large grey cuckoo, and landed on the table before them. Much as the cobblers had been surprised, they were still more so when it said, Good gentlemen, what season is this? It's Christmas, said Spur. Then a Merry Christmas to you, said the cuckoo. I went to sleep in the hollow of that old root one evening last summer, and never woke till the heat of your fire made me think it was summer again. But now since you've burned my lodging, let me stay in your hut until the spring comes round. Anyone to hold to sleep in? When I go on my travels next summer, be assured I will bring you some present for your trouble. Stay and welcome, said Spare, while Scrub sat wondering if it was something bad or not. I'll make you a good warm hole and thatch. But you must be hungry after that long sleep. Here is a slice of barley bread. Come, help us keep Christmas. The cuckoo ate up the slice, drank water from the brown jug, he wasn't a bit drinker, and flew into the snug hole which Spare had scooped him in the thatch of the hut. Scrub said he was afraid it wouldn't be lucky, but as he slept on and the days passed, he forgot his fears. And so the snow melted. The heavy rains came, the cold grew less, the days lengthened, and one sunny morning the brothers were woken by the cuckoo shining its own cry to let them know the spring had come. Now I'm going on my travels, said the bird, over the world to tell men of the spring. There's no country where trees bud or flowers bloom that I will not cry in before the year goes round. Give me another slice of barley bread and keep me on my journey and tell me what present I'll bring you at twelve months' end. Scrub would have been angry with his brother for cutting so large a slice, their store of barley meal being low, but his mind was occupied with what present it would be most prudent to ask for. And at length a lucky thought struck him. Ah, good master cuckoo, he said. 
If a great traveller who sees all of the world like you could know of any place where diamonds or pearls maybe were to be found, one of a, a, a tolerable size brought in your beak would help such poor men as my brother and I survive something better than barley bread for your next Christmas entertainment. I know nothing of diamonds or pearls, said the cookie. They're in the hearts of rocks and the sand of rivers. My knowledge is only that of which grows in the earth. But there are two trees hard by the well that lies at the world's end. One of them is called the golden tree, for its leaves are of beaten gold. Every winter they fall into a well with a sound like scattered coin, and I know not what becomes of them. As for the other, it is always green, like a laurel. Some call it the wise, and some call it the merry tree. Its leaves never fall, but they that get one of them keep a blithe heart in spite of all misfortunes, and can make themselves as merry and hearty as in a palace. Good Master Cookie, bring me a leaf off that tree, said Spare. Oh, brother, don't be a fool, said Scrub. Think of the leaves of beaten gold. Beaten gold? Dear Master Cookie, bring me one of those. Before another word could be spoken, the cookie had flown out the open door and was shouting its spring cry over moor and meadow. The brothers were poorer than ever that year. No one would send them a single shoe to mend. The new cobbler said in scorn they should come and be his apprentices, and Scrub and Spare would have left the village but for their barley fields, their cabbage garden, and a certain maid, called Fairfeather, who both the cobblers had courted for seven years without even knowing what she meant to favour. Sometimes Fairfeather seemed inclined to scrub, sometimes she smiled on Spare, but the brothers never disputed for that. They sowed their barley, they planted their cabbage, and now that their trade was gone, worked in rich villagers' fields to make out a scanty living. So the seasons came, and passed. Spring, summer, harvest, and winter followed each other as they have done from the very beginning. And at the end of winter, Scrub and Spur had grown so poor and ragged that Fairfeather thought them beneath her notice. Old neighbours forgot to invite them to wedding feasts or merrymaking, and they thought the cuckoo had forgotten them too. And at daybreak, on the 1st of April, they heard a hard beak knocking at their door and a voice crying, Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Let me in with my presents! Spare ran to open the door and in came the cuckoo bearing one side of his bill a golden leaf, larger than any tree in the North Country, and in the other, one like that of the common laurel, only it had a fresher green. Here, the cuckoo said, giving the gold to Scrub and the green to Spare, it's a long way from the world's end. Give me a slice of barley bread, for I must tell the North Country that spring has come. Squab did not grudge the thickness of that slice, even though it was cut from their last loaf. So much gold had never been in the cobbler's hands before, and he couldn't help exulting over his brother. See, he said, see the wisdom of my choice, he said, holding up the large leaf. As for yours, it might be plucked from any hedge. I wonder a sensible bird would carry it so far. Good master cobbler, said the cookie, finishing the slice. Your conclusions are more hasty than courteous. If your brother is disappointed this time, I go on the same journey every year. For your hospitable entertainment, we'll think it no trouble to bring each of you whichever leaf you desire. Darling cuckoo, said Scrub, bring me the golden one. And Spare, looking up from the green leaf on which he gazed as though it was a crown jewel, said, Be sure to bring me one from the merry tree. And away flew the cuckoo. This is the Feast of All Falls, and it ought to be your birthday, said Scrub. Did a man ever throw away such an opportunity of getting rich? How much good your merry leaves will do in the midst of your rags and poverty? And he went on and on. But Spare laughed at him and answered, old proverbs containing cares that came with gold, till Scrub, at length getting very angry, vowed his brother was not fit to live with a respectable man, took his last, his oil and his golden leaf, and left the wattle hut, and went to tell the villagers. They were astonished at the folly of Spare, and charmed with Scrub's good sense. As people are often charmed when people are shown a big golden leaf, 
And they told him that the cooker would bring him one every spring. The new cobbler immediately took him into partnership. The greatest people sent him their shoes to mend. Fairfeather smiled graciously upon him. And in the course of that summer they were married with a grand wedding feast at which the whole village danced, except Spare. He was not invited, as the bride could not bear his low-mindedness and his brother thought he was a disgrace to the family. Indeed, all who heard the story concluded that Spare must be mad and nobody would associate with him but a tinker, a beggar boy and a woman who was reputed to be a witch. As for Scrub, he established himself with Fairfeather in a cottage close by that of the new cobbler and quite as lovely. There he mended shoes to everyone's satisfaction, had a scarlet coat for holidays and a fat goose for dinner every feast day. Fairfeather too had a crimson gown and fine blue ribbons, but neither she nor Scrub were content, for to buy this grandeur the golden leaf had to be broken and parted with piece by piece, so the last morsel was gone before the cooker came with another. Spare lived on in the old hut and worked in the cabbage garden. Scrub had got the barley fields because he was the eldest, Every day his coat grew more ragged and the hut more weather-beaten. But people remarked he never looked sad or sour. And the wonder was that from the time they began to keep his company, the tinker grew kinder to his donkey with which he travelled the country. The beggar kept out of mischief and the woman was never cross to her cat or angry with the children. And every first of April the cookie came tapping at their doors with a golden leaf for scrub and the green for spare. Fairfather would have entertained him nobly with wheat and bread and honey. She had some notion of persuading him to bring back two gold leaves instead of one, but the cuckoo flew away to eat barley bread with spare, saying he wasn't fit company for fine people, and he liked the old hut where he slept so snugly from Christmas till spring. Scrub spread the golden leaves, and spare kept the merry ones. And, well, many years passed in this fashion, and probably would have gone on so. But then a certain great lord, who owned the village, came back to the neighbourhood, his castle stood on the moor. It was ancient and strong, with high towers and a deep moat. All the country, as far as one could see from the highest turret, belonged to its lord. But he hadn't been there for twenty years, and he wouldn't have come then, only he was melancholy. The cause of his grief is he had been prime minister at court, and in high favour, till someone told the crown prince he had spoken disrespectfully concerning the turning out of his royal highness's toes, and the king didn't um, put enough taxes on the people, whereupon the North Country Lord was turned out of office and banished to his own estate. There he lived for some weeks in a very bad temper. The servants said nothing would please him, the villagers put on all their worst clothes, lest he should raise their rents. But one day in the harvest time, his lordship chanced to meet Spare, gathering watercresses at a meadow stream, and fell in to talk with a cobbler. How it was, no one could tell. But from the hour of that conversation, the great lord cast away his melancholy. He forgot his lost office and his court enemies, the king's taxes, the crown prince's toes, and went about with a noble train of hunting, fishing, making merry in his hall, where all travellers were entertained and all the poor were welcome. This strange story spread through the north country, and great company came to the cobbler's hut. Rich men who had lost their money, poor men who had lost their friends, beauties who had grown old, wits who had gone out of fashion, all came to talk with Spare, and whatever their troubles had been, all went home merry. The rich gave him presents, the poor gave him thanks. Spare's coat ceased to be ragged, he had bacon with his cabbage, and the villagers began to think there was some sense to him. By this time, his fame had reached the capital city and even the court. There were a great many discontented people there besides the king, who had lately fallen into ill humour, because a neighbouring princess with seven islands for her dowry would not marry his eldest son. So a royal messenger was sent to spare. 
with a velvet mantle, a diamond ring, and a command he should repair to court immediately. Tomorrow is the 1st of April, said Spare, and I will go with you two hours after sunrise. The messenger lodged all night at the castle, and the cookie came at sunrise with a merry leaf. Court's a fine place, said the cookie, when the cobbler told him he was going, but I can't come there. They would lay snares and catch me, so be careful of the leaves I've brought you, and give me a farewell slice of barley bread. Spare was sorry to part with the cuckoo, little as he had of his company, but he gave him a slice which would have broken Scrub's heart in former times, it was so thick and large, and having sewn the leaves up in the lining of his leather doublet, he set out with a messenger on his way to court. His coming caused great surprise there. Everyone wondered what the king could see in such a common-looking man, but scarce had his majesty conversed with him for half an hour when the princess and her seven islands were forgotten, and orders were given that a feast for all comers should be spread in the banquet hall. The princes of the blood, the great lords and ladies, ministers of state, judges of the land, after that discoursed with spare, and the more they talked, the lighter grew their hearts, so that church changes had never been seen at court. The lords forgot their spites, and the ladies their envies. The princes and ministers made friends among themselves, and the judges showed no favour. As for Spare, he had a chamber assigned to him in the palace, and a seat at the king's table. One sent him rich robes and other costly jewels, but in the midst of all his grandeur, he still wore the leather doublet, which the palace servants thought terrible. One day, the king's attention being drawn to it by the chief page, his majesty inquired why Spare didn't give it to a beggar. But the cobbler answered, Oh, most high and mighty king, this doublet was with me before silk and velvet came. I find it easier to wear than the court cut. Moreover, it serves to keep me humble by recalling the days when it was my holiday garment. The king thought this was a wise speech, commanded no one should find fault with the doublet. And so things went well, till tidings of his brother's good fortune reached Scrub in the moorland cottage. On another first of April, when the cookie came with two golden leaves because he had none to carry for spare, Think of that, said Fairfeather. Here we are, spending our lives in this, well, village, and spares me his fortune at court with two or three paltry green leaves. What would they say to our golden ones? Let's pack up, make our way to the king's palace. I'm sure he'll make you a lord and me a lady, not to speak of all the fine clothes and presents we shall have. Scrub thought this was excellent reasoning, and their packing began. But the thing was, they found their cottage, well, didn't think anything in it was fit to go to court. Fairfeather couldn't think of wooden bowls and spoons and trenches being seen there. Scrub considered his last and all's better left behind, as without them, he concluded, no one would suspect him of becoming a cobbler. So putting on their holiday clothes, Fairfeather took her looking glass and Scrub his drinking horn, which happened to have a very thin rim of silver, and each carrying a golden leaf carefully wrapped up so that none might see it till they reached the palace, the pair set out in great expectation. How far Scrub and Fairfeather journeyed, I cannot say. But when the sun was high and warm at noon, they came into a wood, both tired and hungry. If I had known it was so far to court, said Scrub, I would have bought the end of that barley loaf we left in the cupboard. Husband, said Fairfeather, you shouldn't have such mean thoughts. How could one eat barley bread on the way to a palace? Let us rest ourselves under this tree and look at our golden leaves to see if they are safe. In looking at the leaves and talking of their fine prospects, Scrub and Fairfeather did not perceive that a very thin old woman had slipped from behind a tree with a long staff in her hand and a great bag by her side. Noble lord and lady, she said, for I know you are such by your voices. My eyes are not very good and my hearing's not really sharp, but would you tell me where I can find some water to mix a bottle of mead which I carry in my bag as it's too strong for me? 
As the old woman spoke, she pulled out a large wooden bottle, such as shepherds used in ancient times. Quartz with leaves rolled together and a small cup dangling from its handle. Perhaps you'll do me the favour of tasting it, she said. It's only made of the best honey. I also have a cream cheese and a wheat and loaf here. If such honourable persons as yourselves would like to eat it. Scrub and Fairfeather became very condescending after this speech. They were sure now there must be some appearance of nobility about them. Besides, they were really hungry, and having hastily wrapped up the golden leaves, they assured the old woman they weren't, weren't proud, notwithstanding the lands and the castles that had left behind them in North Country, and they'd willingly help lighten her wallet. The old woman could scarcely be persuaded to sit down for pure humility, but at last she did, and before the bag was half empty, Scrub and Fairfeather firmly believed there must be something remarkably noble-looking about them. This was not entirely owing to her ingenious discourse. The woman was a woodwitch. Her name was Buttertongue, and all her time was spent making mead, which, being boiled with different herbs and spells, had the power of making all who drink it fall asleep and dream with their eyes open. She had two sons. One was named Spy, and the other Pounce. Wherever their mother went, they were not far behind, and whoever tasted her meat were sure to be robbed by her sons. Scrub and Fairfeather sat leaning against the old tree. The cobbler had a lump of cheese in his hand. His wife held a haunch of bread. Their eyes and mouths were both open, for they were dreaming of great grandeur at court. When the old woman raised her shrill voice, Come on, my sons, come here and carry home the harvest. No sooner had she spoken than they darted out of a neighbouring thicket. Idle boys, what have you been doing to help our living? I've been to the city, said Spy, and could see nothing. They're hard times for us. Everyone minds their business so contentedly since that cobbler came. But here is his leathern doublet, which is paged throughout the window. It's of no use, but I thought I'd let you see I wasn't idle. And he tossed down Spare's doublet, with the merry leaves in it, which he had carried in a bundle on his back. To explain how Spy came by it, I must tell you that the forest wasn't far from the great city, where Spare lived in such high esteem. All things had gone well with the cobbler till the king thought it was quite unbecoming to see such a worthy man without a servant. His majesty, therefore, to let all men understand his royal favour towards Spare, appointed one of his own pages to wait upon him. The name of this young man was Tinseltoes, and though he was the seventh of the king's pages, no one in all the court had grander notions of his own importance. Nothing can please him that it didn't if it didn't have gold or silver on it, and his grandmother feared he would do something terrible after being appointed page to a cobbler. As for Spare, if anything could have troubled him, this token of his majesty's kindness would have done it. This honest man had been so used to serving himself, the page was always in the way. But his merry leaves came to his assistance, and to the great surprise of his grandmother, Tinseltoes took wonderfully to his new service. Some said because Spare gave him nothing to do but play at bowls all day on the palace green. Yet one thing still grieved the heart of Tinseltoes, and that was his master's leather doublet. For with it he was persuaded people would never remember that Spare had been a cobbler, and the page took a deal of pains to see how unfashionable it was at court. But Spare answered Tinseltoes as he had done the king, and at last, finding nothing better would do, the page got up one fine morning early than his master, threw the leather doublet out of the back window into a lane, where Spy found it and brought it to his mother. That nasty thing, said the old woman, what's the good in that? By this time, Pounce had taken everything of value from Scrub and Fairfeather, the looking glass, the silver-rimmed horn, the husband's scarlet coat, the wife's mantle, and above all the golden leaves, which so rejoiced old Buttertongue and her sons, they threw the leather doublet over the sleeping cobbler for a jest and went off to their hut in the heart of the forest. Now, the sun 
was going down, went scrubbing fair feather, awoke from dreaming they'd been made a lord and a lady, and sat clothed in silk and velvet, feasting with the king in his palace hall. It was a great disappointment. They find their golden leaves and all their best things gone. Scrub tore his hair and vowed to take the old man's life while Fairfeather lamented and cried. But Scrub, feeling cold for one of his coat, put on the leather doublet without asking or caring where it came from. Scarcely was it buttoned when a change came over him. He started laughing and talking and said such silly things to Fairfeather that instead of lamentations, she made the wood ring with laughter. Both busied themselves getting up a hut of boughs in which Scrub kindled a fire. With a flint and a steel, which, altogether with his pipe, he had brought unknown to Fairfeather, who told him the like was never heard of at court. Then he found a pheasant's nest at the foot of an old oak, made a meal out of roasted eggs, and they went to sleep on a peep of long green grass which they gathered, with nightingales singing all night long in the old trees about them. So it happened that Scrub and Fairfeather stayed day after day in the forest, making their hut larger and more comfortable against the winter, living on birds' eggs and berries, and never thinking of their lost golden leaves or their journey to court. While this strange thing was happening, Spur had got up and, and well, missed his doublet. Tinseltoes, of course, said he knew nothing about it. The whole palace was searched, every servant questioned till all the court wondered why the fuss was made about an old doublet. Very day, things came back to the way they used to be. Quarrels came up about the lords, jealousies among the ladies. The king said his subjects didn't pay him half enough taxes. The queen wanted more jewels. The servants took to their old rows and got up some new ones. Spare found himself feeling, well, nowhere near as interesting and very much out of place. Nobles began to ask what business a cobbler had at the king's table and his majesty ordered the palace chronicles to be searched for a precedent. The cobbler was too wise to tell all he had lost with that doublet, but being by this time somewhat familiar with court customs, he proclaimed a reward, a reward of 50 gold pieces to anyone who would bring him news concerning it. Scarcely was this made known in the city when the gates and outer courts of the palace were filled with men, women and children, some bringing doublets of every cut and colour, some with tales of what they'd heard and seen their walks around the neighbourhood. So much news concerning all sorts of great people came out of these stories that lords and ladies ran to the king with complaints of spare as a speaker and slander. And His Majesty, being now satisfied there was no example in all the palace records of such a retainer, issued a decree banishing the cobbler forever from court, confiscating all of his goods and giving them to Tinseltoe. That royal edict was scarcely published before the page was in full possession of his rich chamber, his costly garments and all the presents the courtiers had given him. While Spare, having no longer the fifty pieces of gold to give as a reward, was glad to make his escape out of the back window for fear of the nobles, who vowed to be revenged on him, and the crowd, who had to stone him for cheating him about the doublet. The window from which Spare let himself down with a strong rope was, by coincidence, the same one that Tinseltoes had tossed out the doublet, and as the cobbler came down late in the twilight, a poor woodman with a heavy load of wood stopped and stared at him in great astonishment. "'What's the matter?' said Spare. "'Haven't you ever seen a man coming down from a back window before, by a rope?' "'Well, it's not that,' said the woodman. "'It's just the last morning I passed here, a leather doublet came out of that window, and I'll be bound you're the owner of it.' I am, said the cobbler. Can you tell me which way the doublet went? As I walked on, said the woodman, a man called Spy bundled it up and ran off to his mother in the forest. Honest friend, said Spare, taking up the last of his fine clothes, a grass green mantle edged with gold. I'll give you this if you'll follow the man and bring me back my doublet. It wouldn't be as good to carry wood in, said the woodman. But if you want back your doublet, the road to the forest lies at the end of this lane. He judged away. Now, Spare was determined to find his doublet, and sure that neither crowd or courtiers could catch him in a forest, went on his way, and was soon among the tall trees. 
but neither hut nor man could he see. Moreover, the night came on, the wood was dark and tangled, and here and there the moon shone through its alleys. Great owls flitted about, and the nightingales sang. So he went on, hoping to find some place of shelter, and at last, the red light of a fire gleaming through a thicket led him to the door of a low hut. It stood half open, as if there was nothing to fear, and within he saw his brother Scrub snoring loudly on a bed of grass, at the foot of which lay his own leather doublet, while Fairfeather, in a kirtle made of plaited rushes, sat roasting pheasant's eggs by the fire. "'Good evening, mistress,' said Spur, stepping in. The blaze shone on him, but so changed was her brother-in-law with his court life, that Fairfeather didn't know him, and she answered far more courteously than was her wont. "'Good evening, master. Where have you come from so late?' But speak quietly, for my good man has sorely tied himself chop-chopping wood, and is taking a sleep, as you see, before supper. A good rest to him, said Spur, perceiving he was not known. I come from the forward for a day's hunting, and have lost my way in the forest. Sit down and have a share of our supper, said Fairfeather. I'll put some more eggs in the ashes, and tell me news of court. I used to think of it long ago, when I was young and foolish. Did you ever go there? said the cobbler. So fair a woman as you would make the ladies marvel. You're pleased to flatter, said Fairfeather. But my husband has a brother there, and we left our moorland village to try our fortune also. An old woman enticed us with fair words and strong drink at the entrance of this forest while we fell asleep and dreamt of great things. When we woke, everything had been robbed from us. My looking-glass, my scarlet cloak, my husband's Sunday coat, and in place of all the robbers left him with his old leather doublet, which was worn ever since, and never have we been as merry in his life, although we live in this poor hut. "'Tis a shabby doublet, that,' said Spur, taking up the garment, seeing it was still his own, for the merry leaves were still sewed in its lining. "'It'd be good for hunting in, however. Your husband would be glad to part with it, I dare say, in exchange for this handsome cloak.' And he pulled off the green mantle and buttoned on the doublet, much to Fairfeather's delight, who ran and shook Scrub, saying, Husband, husband, rise and see what a good bargain I've made. Scrub gave one a closing snore and muttered something about a root being hard. But he rubbed his eyes and gazed upon his brother and said, Spur, is that really you? How did you like the court and how have you made your fortune? That I have, brother. And getting back my own good leather doublet. Come, let us eat eggs and rest ourselves this night. In the morning we'll return to our own hut at the end of the moorland village, where the Christmas cookie will come and bring us leaves. Scrub and Fairfeather agreed, and in the morning they all returned, and walked and walked and walked and walked, and found the old hut little the worse for wear and weather. The neighbours came to ask the news of the court and see if they'd made their fortune. Everyone was astonished to see the three poorer than ever rather than richer. But somehow they liked to go back to visit the hut, Spare brought out the lass and all he had hidden in a corner. Scrub and he began their old trade, and the whole North Country found out they never were such cobblers. They mended the shoes of lords and ladies as well as the common people. Everyone was satisfied. The custom increased from day to day, and all that were disappointed, discontented, or unlucky came to the hut as in old times before Spare went to court. The rich brought them presents, the poor did them service. The hut itself changed. No one knew how. Flowering honeysuckle grew over its roof, red and white roses grew thick about its door. Moreover, the Christmas cuckoo always came on the 1st of April, bringing three leaves of the merry tree, for Scrub and Fairfeather would have no more golden ones. And so it was with them when last I heard news of the North Country. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale. I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. This will be the last new episode this year. I'll be back at the beginning of February with a brand new episode. In 
case you'd like some festive stories in the meantime, I have a couple of festive episodes of just seasonal stories, and I'll link to these in the show notes. If you subscribe to my Substack letter, which obviously I encourage you to do, link is also in the show notes, you'll receive a couple more of these on the 13th and 20th of December, and then I'll be back with that on the 10th of January 2023. Can you believe it? I'll also be sharing the rest of my festive folklore, food folklore rather, on all of my social media accounts until the 24th of December. I'd also love to tell you all how much I appreciate you, gentle listeners, and take the opportunity to wish you a merry whichever festival you celebrate at this time of year. Thank you for continuing to listen, and I look forward to the new year and bringing you more wonderful episodes of folklore, food and fairy tales. (laughs) 